this on? Oh, I did. Okay. Uh, good to see all of you. Uh, welcome to those of you up in the Well Cafe. I saw many of you earlier. Can't see you now, but hopefully you can see me. Hello. Uh, it's good to be here and worship with you as we continue our series uh, called Declutter. So if you brought your Bible with you, we're going to go ahead and jump right in. Uh, find 1 Timothy for me, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 12 through 17. 1 Timothy is in the New Testament. It's near the end of the Bible. It's a small book of the Bible. Uh, amidst a bunch of other small books. So if you have to use your table of contents, nobody's going to judge you. No need to be ashamed. This morning, we're all there with you. We all had to do it. Uh, and so go ahead. Uh, but actually, before we get started, uh, actually, I forgot to mention, if you didn't bring a Bible, uh, we have some available for you upstairs in the back. Down here, we have them in the chairs in front of you underneath. Uh, if you're using that blue Bible, you can find First Timothy on page 1844. Uh, so that's there for you as well. Uh, last week, uh, when we got started with our sermon, the first thing we did is we wanted to celebrate somebody who is transitioning into a new role. Uh, so we brought Lauren up here. Uh, many of you know Lauren. Uh, she has served with our student ministries for, for a while now, and she has been a candidate for pastoral ministry. And she, as of July 1st, will be appointed here as a pastor, so she'll get to serve as Reverend Lauren Robkin, which is going to be really Fun and weird to start saying, but I'm very excited. We're all very excited for her. So we got to celebrate that last week. This week, we want to do kind of the same thing in the same vein. We want to celebrate somebody who's transitioning into a new role. As many of you know, uh, Pastor Mike, who has served this church, uh, this congregation here since 1995, uh, will be starting in July his new role as one of our district superintendents in our conference. Now, this role in our conference, is one of he's one of five district superintendents who helps supervise the over 300 churches in our conference. So Mike's role is going to be um, overseeing a portion of those churches as well as many other things. Mike has been an incredible leader uh, for this congregation, an incredible influence in many of our lives and, and in our community, an influence that he has shared with us that he now gets to share with many churches uh, across Central Texas, with many congregations, with many people. Uh, and we are very excited about that. We are very proud of Mike, uh, but we're also, you know, a little sad. Uh, so with all that being said, what I wanted to do is especially encourage you. Um, we have a new series coming up following Declutter. So we have one more week of Declutter, and then after that, uh, a new series coming up that Pastor Mike is going to teach in all of our services, and it's called Confessions of a Pastor. Now that sounds like really scandalous, right? Like, <laughs> you'll have to show up and find out. <laughs> Mike's upstairs right now in the Well Cafe, so any of you up there can start bugging him and asking him about all the dirt that he's going to share. Uh, but in all honesty, Mike's, I'm very excited about this uh, series. Mike's going to come share with us uh, the wisdom uh, that he has gained over um, almost 40 years of pastoral ministry, over 20 of which have been right here uh, in this congregation. It's a series that I greatly look forward to. I know many of you look forward to. Even those of you that haven't uh, had the opportunity to know Mike or get to know Mike very well, you won't want to miss this. Uh, Mike is so wise and has many great things to say. Um, and he's funny. Uh, he's, I'm sure he's going to have some wonderful stories as well. But just all of us are going to be the better for it to be and, and to, to glean from that wisdom that he has gained over those years. So I wanted to share that with you to make sure you weren't going to miss it. I know you're right now scratching that vacation that you were going to go on. You're marking that out. You're going to be here for that. Uh, but just please make sure you're here. I, I, I don't want you to miss it because you truly will be blessed 
So uh, I'm with that. Enough of that. I know I'm embarrassing Mike up there. So uh, we are in week four of five of our Declutter series, uh, a series that we, we noted right off the top. It's, it's a series that we all connect with. We see that video of clutter and we identify with that. Whether we would uh, see that kind of clutter in our own lives or not, we all have been in those times and we, and we know what it means. We know that clutter is something that crowds our life and it crowds out new possibilities in our life. And what we all seek to find is a little space in our cluttered and chaotic world. We all identify with that. But we also identified that this series isn't necessarily about cleaning out our, our sock drawer or our closets. Um, maybe not in the literal sense, but in the metaphorical sense. We, we've noted that this series is really about the clutter that leave, lives deep inside all of us. And that very first week, we wanted to establish this foundational truth that the clutter... Um, our clutter problem is actually our soul problem. A clutter problem is our soul problem. So when we look at the clutter in our lives and we long for harmony in our life and we feel this discontent, this discomfort, uh, this disharmony, and we look around and we feel the clutter and chaos in our lives, uh, we want to seek to make room to create space for God to work in us again. So that's really what this series is all about. Uh, the first two aspects of this that we've talked about, uh, two weeks ago we talked about hurry. Uh, last week, we talked about noise, and if you've missed any of those, I, I would love for you to hear them. Uh, they're on our website, firstmethodistmansfield.org slash media, also on our iTunes podcast. And this week, we're going to talk about the past. So maybe the metaphor for cleaning out the closet is a good one. Uh, we're going to talk about our past uh, a little bit, and so we're going to talk about this idea of grace and guilt and, and forgiveness. I want to share with you uh, one of the things that I do uh, in preparation for sermons. There's a lot that goes into it, a lot, a lot of praying. Uh, but one of the things I do in preparation for a sermon is, is a lot of research. I like to go through books or articles that I've read and I've saved. Um, I like to ask uh, pastor friends uh, what, you know, what they think about a certain scripture. I like to recall memories or stories. Um, I'll often consult St. Google and see what Google has to say about things. <laughs> In my research, as I was thinking back, I, I remembered this article that I had read almost a year ago, and I, it, it struck me, and I thought it was really relevant uh, for our conversation today in a, in a way to introduce what we're talking about. In this article, uh, there was an interview with one of our presidential candidates, and in this interview, uh, he was asked, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And this candidate responded with, well, no, I don't think I have. And he went on to say that he didn't really feel like he needed to ask for forgiveness. I, I won't tell you who it is, but you can probably guess. Um, his response was that he didn't really think he need, it was necessary to involve God at all in this. And that really for him it was just if he messed up or if he did something wrong that he would just do better next time, right? There was, God doesn't need to be in this picture. Why does God need to be in this mess? Like just God will do God's thing and, uh, and I will do my thing. Now as you can imagine, uh, this, this upset a lot of Christians, right? For those of you that, that read this article or heard this interview, it probably upset you uh, a little bit as well, because it doesn't really necessarily agree with what our scriptures have to say about guilt and forgiveness. But here's the trick, and, and, and I don't really fault him for saying this in the interview, because though we may not articulate it in the same way that he did, I have a suspicion that many of us tend to live that way. 
And we tend to live in a, in a sense that we don't necessarily need to in, involve God and, and most of the goings-on of our life. And, and that really, if we just mess up, we can just try to do better next time. I mean, we're Americans, for gosh sakes, right? Like, we just, we make our own life right. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Uh, we don't really need God for forgiveness. We just need to do better next time. The challenge is, of course, if we don't realize the seriousness of sin and this, the effect sin has on our life and our relationships with others and our relationship with God, if we don't understand the availability and the need for God and God's grace in our life, then we will find that we will lack the true change and transformation and the fullness of life that God desires for everyone. We miss out on that because we don't fully comprehend the part that's broken and we don't involve God, the most powerful being there is, right? The one that made us, that created us, that owns it all. We're not there in step with God who knows our names and loves us and wants to help us through that and help us change. But the forgiveness of sins is not just about understanding that we are sinners and that we need forgiveness. Uh, It's also about understanding that God has chosen to forgive us. That God has reached out to each and every one of us with grace that we don't earn. And, and what I find very interesting about this is that uh, there are some of us out there that don't feel like they need grace, obviously, and we've, we've talked about that. But there are also people that understand that we do need grace, that want grace, but also feel like they can't have it. There, there are people, and, and it may be some of you in this room, maybe somebody upstairs, that feel like we understand this grace thing. I have a working knowledge of what grace is. I've read about grace in the scriptures, but there's a little part of us that thinks it's not for me, though. That grace is just too unbelievable. I have a hard time applying it to myself. And, and, and this person might ask this question, is God's grace actually big enough for me? Is God's grace really big enough for me? It's really hard. Grace is so unbelievable, and it's hard, it's hard to, to understand and to believe that it is actually available to us. It could be some unmet expectations that we have for ourselves that we feel like we just don't live up to. So there's this part of us that feels a little bit of regret or guilt. It might be regret or guilt from some mistake we may have made. It could have been a recent mistake or an ancient mistake, um, but it happened and it's with us, and it, it doesn't quite go away, and it continues to kind of reveal itself and remind us that, hey, remember, this happened. You did do this. This was you at some point in your life. And that pain or the shame of, uh, of, of being reminded of that uh, just won't let you go. It continues to remind you, and that mistake won't go away because it's always there. Now, here's the trick to this, is it doesn't matter how big this mistake, this could be a ginormous, gigantic, life-altering mistake, or it could be something very tiny. It could be something very small that just has lodged itself within us, and we haven't figured out how to forgive ourselves, and we haven't quite figured out how to accept God's forgiveness and grace. So you get dressed up, and you come to church, and you sit, and we sing songs, and at this point in the sermons where you're looking around at everybody else and seeing how nice they look and thinking about how, how together their life is, and you're wondering, is this just me? Like, I hear the pastor talking, and I'm feeling this, but I'm pretty sure this is just me. 
And every week you show up and you see that and you wonder, is it just me that has, a tr- has trouble with grace? Is it just me that has a regret like mine? Is it just me that has guilt like mine? And, and if this people sitting around me only knew, only knew me, only knew the real me, they wouldn't want to sit around me. They would sit somewhere else. They would go to a completely different service if they only knew. Here's the good news. We already know. We know this about you. People know this about you. That sounds like bad news. But the good news is that we already know because we all know it about ourselves too. We all know it about ourselves too. Here's, here's part of the human condition. We're humans, so we're going to fail. We're going to fall. We're going to hurt people. We're going to say mean things. We're going to do things that we don't want to do. We're going to do things that we regret. We're going to do things that hurt ourselves or others. These things are going to happen. But if we allow guilt and regret to remain, to define us, if we cannot move past that, if we cannot accept God's grace, then we carry a heavy burden. We chain ourselves to our past, and then we limit our possibilities for the future. Remember, this is what we said what clutter does. It, cr- it clutters up. It crowds out any new possibilities. So if we keep that burden of guilt and regret, if we allow that past thing to continue to define our present, it limits our possibilities for the future. Here's what I mean by that. We talked a little bit about this last week, that God is always trying to lead us. God is always speaking to us. God always wants to do a new thing in you and a new thing through you. God has great big plans for you, but if you are chained by the guilt of your past, if you were weighed down by your regret, then we limit the scope of work that God can do in us. Now hear this carefully and don't be mistaken. I'm not here saying that God is limited. God is unlimited. God is all-powerful. God is unlimited in his grace and his love and in his strength. I'm not saying that God has limits, nor am I saying that God is setting the limit. What I'm saying is, is if we choose to hold on to that regret and that guilt, if we continue to carry that heavy burden, when God comes forward with all of his grace and wants to lead you to that new thing, we're giving God the stiff arm, right? Like we're just saying, over there, God, like, thank you, but mm, I don't want to step into that new thing. I don't think I can because God, I don't know if you know this about me or I just feel like I'm not capable, God, because who I once was and, and what I once did. This, this limitation is a self-imposed limitation and when we carry the guilt and regret from our past into our present, it clutters up our life, it clutters up our soul, and it keeps out any possibilities for anything new that God might do. But what would happen if we actually believed that God's grace was big enough for us? What would happen if we did release that and we accepted that grace from God? What would then happen in our lives because of that? What would we be unleashed to? What could God actually do through a dirty old sinner like me? That's when we turn to 1 Timothy. We look in 1 Timothy. Uh, Timothy was, uh, 1 Timothy was written by Paul. Uh, you've probably heard of Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, who has written the, the majority uh, of the, of the uh, things that we read in the New Testament. 
very influential person, and he's writing to this person named Timothy, right? And so Timothy was a companion of Paul, um, a, a compadre that, that followed him around, and uh, Paul invested in Timothy. Paul trusted Timothy. Uh, Paul would send Timothy to different churches. Uh, Timothy would oversee the training and, and leading of some of the, the leaders in the church. Um, all that to say, this was a letter to Timothy uh, about leading churches, and you'll see this in 2 Timothy uh, as well. But the thing is, the way, the way this letter was written, it was actually intended, obviously targeted at Timothy, but intended for everyone to hear. It was intended for a broad audience. It was intended for the churches to understand and hear the instruction given to Timothy so that they too could apply it to our lives. So as we read, we're not breaking into Timothy's mail here, right? This isn't a, this isn't a federal crime. This is actually what Paul intended in these writings is for these churches to read the words that he wrote for Timothy and for all of us to have them as well. So uh, in, in true Paul form in his letters, he always begins with a greeting, a salutation to say hello. Uh, and then uh, shortly, uh, not too far into these letters, he likes to give a little testimony. He likes to remind people of his story, of how the good news changed his life. And so here we have it in, uh, in verse 12, where Paul begins this. So we're just going to pick it up there. It says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You might want to circle or underline that word abundantly. Very important word there. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Paul speaks of this former life that he lived as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, as a violent man. If you're not familiar with Paul's story, there are two really important things to know about Paul. The first is that his name wasn't always Paul. He had a consonant change at some point in his life. His name used to be Saul. Uh, and Saul was this Pharisee, and, and here's the other thing you need to know about Paul, Saul, is that Saul uh, made it his life's mission to hunt down and kill Christians. This new movement that was happening, that was forming uh, within the Jewish faith, and that was gaining momentum, Paul saw, or Saul, Saul saw as a threat. <laughs> Saul saw as a threat. And so Saul dedicated his life to hunting down these Christians, these Jesus followers, and stopping whatever movement was happening and whatever means necessary to do so. So you first see Saul in chapter 7 of Acts, and you can read the story from there, and I encourage you to do so if you're unfamiliar with it. And you can see even a very gruesome story of where Saul stands holding the coats of those that throw stones at a guy named Stephen until he's dead gruesome scene and and Saul was actually on his way to Damascus and he's going to continue to do the same thing he wants to continue to hunt down Christians he wants to stop this movement whatever God is doing whatever God is doing now Saul I don't know if Saul really felt like God was in the Jesus movement but at this time whatever God is actually doing through these followers of Jesus this new movement Saul sought to it to end it that was his sole mission I'm going to keep saying so and Saul and all these words that are really confusing, but that's okay. Saul wanted to end that. So he's on his way to Damascus. When he encounters, when he encounters 
the Lord. He encounters the resurrected, resurrected Jesus in a blinding light that knocks him down. And he hears a voice that says, why do you persecute me? The rest of the story goes, you see Paul convicted, completely convicted, and then seeing the light, literally, understanding that his life must change and that instead of actually working against God in this, that Saul was going to take on a new name and become Paul now, and he was going to have a new mission in life. That's why Paul can say this with complete conviction. We look here in verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul thought it was very necessary to, uh, Timothy knows this story. Timothy knows this story. But to remind him again and again that this is my story. That God's grace was big enough for even the worst of sinners Timothy, I've told you the stories of my past. You understand who I was and what I did. And yet Christ Jesus came to save sinners, even the worst sinner, which is me, Paul. God's grace has no ends because it was big enough for even the worst sinner. It has no bounds. It has no limits. And if God's grace is big enough for the biggest sinner, then it's big enough for us too. See, what Paul could have done here. When Paul encounters Christ, when he's blinded by the light, Paul could have easily repented from from that sin. Paul could have easily stopped trying to stop the movement, right? And never actually moved on into this new life, into this new calling. Paul just could have ended there and thought, okay, well, I'm sorry, God. You know, I pray for forgiveness. Uh, But then just be content with just going to church for the rest of his life and praying, and reading scriptures, which are all really great and good things, and really not stepped into this new life that Paul, that God had for Paul. Because he could, he could have easily thought, how could I, Saul, who did all of these terrible things to end this movement, actually be one of the biggest, most influential leaders in this movement? How is that possible for a sinner like me? How is that possible for somebody who has done the things that I have done? He could have done that been totally incapable of, of moving on from his, from his past and just been fine. But Paul proved, Paul proved that God can turn somebody's greatest failures into their biggest ministries. This is what Paul proved. This is what God proved through Paul. So here's our lesson is that we cannot let our past keep us from the future that God has in store for us. Because if we fully accept that God's grace is available to us, that is big enough for us, then we can begin to shake off those chains that bind us and hold us back. We can release the burden that we have been carrying. And we can walk into these new possibilities that God has in store for us and the work that God has called us to. There's one more story I want to share with you 
there's many stories of how grace has completely transformed lives when we have given up everything to God, even our guilt, even the burden of sin that we carry with us. When we give that up to God, there are countless stories of how God has worked. But one in particular I want to share with you this morning uh, is about a guy named John Newton who was born in 1725. He was born in London. His mother, uh, a devout Christian, taught him to read scripture at an early age, uh, taught him to memorize many of the church teachings and hymns. But when John was seven years old, his mother died, and so then he was left to the much less religious care, much more distant care of his father, who was a sea captain. So from age 11 to age 17, John accompanied his father on, on many of these voyages at sea and got kind of a, a, a rough, a, a stern, and, and thorough education of what it meant to live out on the sea, to sail day in and day out. And around 19 years old, John Newton was drafted in to be part of the Royal Navy. But he later deserted that. He figured that life wasn't for him. And he deserted. He ran away. But they caught him. They caught him, and it's not good to desert, not good to be to desert. So they caught him, they chained him up, they flogged him, they beat him, and they dragged him back. But Newton was eventually able to convince his superiors to let him go and join a slaver ship. So Newton spent much of his life as a sailor, as a slave trader. A despicable and abhorrent profession. Somebody who exploited human lives. Somebody who ripped families apart and sold people for his own benefit. Sold them into slavery. An awful person was John with little regard for the faith that he once knew. He, in fact, mocked it, and he did everything he could for those that he encountered that had any shred of faith in them to discredit it and to get them to turn away. He had little concern for faith or those around him. And one night in 1747, aboard one of those slaver ships, a huge storm hits this boat. And this completely faithless John Newton finds this tiny little hint of faith left in him. And in that moment, desperate and fearing for his life, John Newton prayed to God. And John did not die that day. And he would later look back on that moment as the moment his life changed, as the moment he drew back to God. Now, it was a long road for John to realize what that meant for his life, but eventually he made his way back to England. He left the sea. He returned to England. While he was there, he met a couple of Methodists, right? Uh, uh, George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Uh, but he ran into them, uh, befriended them, especially Whitfield. And he began to immerse himself again in his faith. He immersed himself in ministry. And he was eventually ordained as an Anglican priest. John Newton died in 1807, and when he did, he was known for three things in his life. The first thing that he was known for was his tenderness and gentleness as a pastor. This rough uh, sea captain, this rough slave trader, right, became a kind and gentle pastor, leading people to God, teaching of God's love and God's grace. The second thing that John Newton was known for in his death was not his past as a slave trader, but his work in the future to abolish slavery. 
See, as, as uh, John Newton uh, grew in his faith and as he uh, talked with the Wesleys and Whitfield, he began to grow increasingly disgusted with his former occupation and his former way of life. And later in his years, he met a very young uh, William Wilberforce. Some of you that like history, you history nerds will know that name. Uh, and, and John Newton encouraged him. John Newton poured into him and invested in him. And as you know, later on, William Wilberforce was instrumental, an instrumental leader in abolishing slavery in England. A huge thing, the second thing he was known for was this work to abolish the very thing that sustained his life for a long time. And the third thing that John Newton was known for was his hymns. 280 of them to be exact. He wrote quite a, quite many, uh, quite a few hymns. But there was one hymn in particular that he wrote as a, uh, an autobiographical hymn of praise to God. And this hymn became the most well-known and most beloved song of faith of all time. And it goes like this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Those words, imagine those words coming from John. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. God has an amazing plan for our lives, an amazing future for us, has called us to a great work. And there are some of us in this room, some of us upstairs, that have been uneasy about stepping into that. Unsure, not quite as confident that God's grace is big enough for us. Well, know this, God's grace is big enough for you. God's grace knows no limits. And even those things that we most fear to see the light in our lives can actually be part of our greatest ministry, our greatest contribution to people that are trying to grow in their faith. That might reside within you and you are hiding it. God's grace is big enough for you. It is abundant. It has no limits. It has no bounds. If you want to write something down about God's grace, you can write this down. You cannot sin past God's grace. You can't sin past God's grace. It's too big. It's too abundant. It's too much. There's literally nothing you can do to sin past God's grace. We need but to accept it. I wonder how many of us in this room that are putting our arm out and holding God back and holding ourselves back from the work that God's going to do in us, what God might have in store for us. What God might be calling us forward to do. What God might be calling us forward to share. How God might be calling us forward to not only change within ourselves, but change the world around us. To invest in lives and the faith of those around us. I wonder what God has in store for us and what God might be calling us to. What God might be waiting to unleash within you when we fully accept that grace. And we accept that that new person, that transformation that God wants for us. 
when we stop being Saul's and we start becoming Paul's? What would happen if our lives were defined by grace rather than our guilt? If we began to declutter the things that haunt us from our past to create space for God to work in us now? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your words of truth from those that have come from long ago, God, from those that have come from our more recent times, God, those that have dedicated their life to seeking you. We pray, too, God, that we fully know your grace and love, that we are fully able to accept it, God, that we are able to unburden those things that weigh us down, we're able to loose the chains that bind us, God. Accept fully your grace and your future for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.